Well, there's never really a clean transition from saying goodbye to a member of the church to the sermon. That's just kind of, you know, abrupt. <laughs> uh, but what I can say is I really am so thankful for these amazing saints and their contribution to this community. And uh, last week, we got to see that on display again. We had uh, Jesse Blaine, rector of Christ the King Anglican Church, come and visit us and encourage us with the word. And uh, I had told him ahead of his visit, uh, hey, I need you. I'm coming back from our high school mission trip. I'm going to be exhausted. I should not preach that Sunday. And we're preaching through the Psalms. And uh, he heard that, he understood that, and then he still chose to preach from the book of Acts because that's what he's preaching through every week at his church. And so I don't blame him at all. And in fact, I'm really thankful he did that because his sermon actually helped me with my intro to our sermon this week. If you weren't here last week, Jesse preached from Acts 17, and he talked about how Although ancient Athens is separated from us in time by 2,000 years and thousands of miles in space, it's actually remarkably similar to our modern culture and social setting. Uh, and in particular, he highlighted these two philosophies of ancient Athens that are really having a resurgence in our modern context. And those philosophies were Epicureanism and Stoicism. And really, Epicureanism and Stoicism weren't concerned with the grand questions of philosophy. They weren't uh, concerned with reality and existence and knowledge and meaning in life. They were actually just concerned with, how do I live my best life now? Does that sound familiar to anything you've experienced in the world? Maybe people aren't exactly concerned with truth, but with simply just being happy, experiencing pleasure. And on the one hand, Epicureanism tells us that the way to a good life is to maximize pleasure, avoid pain, and not get bored. And on the other hand, Stoicism says you need to master yourself, you need to become indifferent to pleasure and pain, and you need to become self-actualized. Both of these philosophies sound really familiar. There are people we know that are embodying these philosophies, and if we're honest, we've succumbed to them a little bit. I, I want to be a Stoic, I want to master myself, or I often get sucked into pursuing pleasure as the highest good. And if you actually pay attention to what these philosophies teach and, and how they influence us today, you'll see that they both share a remarkable deficiency. Both of them are really incapable of helping you walk through suffering and hardship and pain in any meaningful way. Epicureanism will tell you simply avoid pain. If you're in pain, run from it. Do anything you can to find pleasure now. You need to get out of this suffering. And Stoicism, on the other hand, will just tell you you need to build up emotional walls so that you become immune, desensitized to pain. Neither of them help you to actually walk into pain and suffering with any honesty, with any deep emotional engagement, and they don't help you make meaning out of your pain. And that is one of the amazing resources of our faith. One of the greatest apologetics of the Christian faith is that it has unparalleled resources for handling the suffering of the world and your own personal life. There is no other message that can help us walk into pain and suffering, not simply avoid it, not simply make ourselves desensitized to it, but actually walk into it with hope, with the ability to be transformed and to actually experience it without being crushed by it. 
And so we're continuing this morning in our sermon series in Psalm 13. All summer long, we've been uh, in the Psalms. We've been reminding ourselves that the Psalms are the original prayer book of the church. They are the original prayer book of Jesus. And as we make these prayers our prayers, they free up our devotional life to love and serve and trust God as we ought. And Psalm 13 is a Psalm that frees us up in our pain, even to love, to serve, to trust God, to make meaning in a place of suffering where no other philosophy really can. And all summer long, I've gotten to tell people that I'm preaching through the Psalms, and I've, I've basically shared with people, yeah, I get to preach the greatest hits of the Psalter. You know, we preach Psalm 23, Psalm 103, Psalm 84, some really fun Psalms. Uh, but this week is not one of the greatest hits. Nobody in this room would say, Psalm 13 is my favorite Psalm. Nobody thinks that. But it's the Psalm we need. It's the Psalm in God's infinite wisdom and love that he gave to us so that we could walk through suffering and pain. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm 13. We're going to see three things in our text this morning. First, when you face suffering, when you face pain, you need to go to God in lament. And lament is really unfamiliar to us, so we're going we're to spend some time there exploring what it is. And second, when you face suffering and pain and it feels like God is silent, you need to keep praying and pray in accordance with God's character. And finally, when you face suffering, whether you see a light at the end of the tunnel or not, you need to rejoice in God's salvation. So Psalm 13, again, I've, I've memorized the psalm for this morning. I've encouraged you all all summer long to memorize the word of God, to put these prayers in your heart and on your mind. And if you remember way back to my first sermon in this sermon series, I, I told you extemporaneous prayer is awesome. It is wonderful. And one of its faults is when you have no words to pray, you end up being prayerless. And so if you're suffering you're probably not coming up with just long lists of prayers for God. You're probably in that place of wordlessness in your prayer life, and you need Psalm 13. And if you're not suffering this morning, you need Psalm 13 in your heart and in your mind so that you remember how to respond when hardship, when pain, when suffering catches up with you. So I encourage you, please, memorize Psalm 13 this week. So here's Psalm 13 from the ESV. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in, in the Lord's salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The first thing you see in Psalm 13 is when you experience suffering and pain, you need to start with lament. And lament is really unfamiliar to us. We don't pray like David just did. 
We don't pray like that. Many of us have prayed, God, I am struggling. Help me. Many of us have prayed, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. Teach me what I'm supposed to learn. Many of us have prayed simply, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But very few of us actually pray, God, how long are you going to let me suffer? God, when will this end? When will you stop ignoring me? Do something. That's an uncomfortable prayer. And I think we don't pray these prayers because somewhere we got this idea that, that this prayer of lament is dishonoring to God, that it doesn't respect God, that it's somehow presumptuous. We're telling God how he ought to behave, how he ought to treat us. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. You see, a lament actually is a deep response of faith in the midst of pain. Lament doesn't dishonor God. It actually really honors and respects God because the foundation of lament is three beliefs. And I really wish we could get far more into this. We could do a whole sermon series on lament, and we just don't have the time this morning to go way into it. But I want to start here with just three beliefs that are the foundation of lament. First, God is sovereign. Second, God is infinitely valuable. And third, God is good. So when you look at David's prayer, when David cries out, you've ignored me, God, you've hidden your face from me, you've left me alone with my suffering and pain, he is rightfully drawing the conclusion that God is in control. He is rightfully drawing the conclusion that God is powerful, he is sovereign, he's the one who can do something about my pain. And one of the most damaging things we often tell people who are experiencing suffering is God didn't want this to happen. And we can assume the best about that statement. We can assume what that person means is God is not the ultimate author of evil. God himself commits no sin. He does nothing that is unholy, that is profane. Sure, absolutely. But often what we actually mean is God didn't even see this coming. God didn't have any hand in this. And, and, and he's just as shocked as you are. And he's, he's grieving with you and caught off guard. And we think that's really helpful. We think that's really pastoral. Because what we're, we're trying to protect God from the problem of evil. We're trying to protect him fr from the problem in our minds that he is infinitely powerful. And yet there's evil in the world. And yet the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is constantly telling us that God is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, and he controls everything, and there's evil in the world. And we have to grapple with that. But the Bible's not concerned with protecting God from the problem of evil. And when we try to protect God from the problem of evil, actually what we're doing is pulling the rug out from under the feet of somebody who's suffering. Because what we're ultimately telling them is God can't help you. He couldn't prevent this from happening to you, and therefore he's powerless to help you now. Do you notice that David doesn't pray, God, if you're able, come to my rescue. God, can you save me from this? God, I need your help. Do, do you know how to save me? He's not asking God to show up in a situation where he's not already present. In fact, he's accusing God of not being with him in his suffering. 
He sees that God is in control. God is powerful to save. God is sovereign. And so we need to to move away from this, this pastoral disaster that is telling people God's not in control. That actually empties them of any hope that God can do something to save them. A much better metaphor that helps us with the problem of pain, I heard a few years ago at an event we did at Trinity. I, I used to lead these events called oikos events, and that's the Greek word for household or family, and we would organize these intergenerational conversations where primarily we'd ask older members of the congregation to speak on a topic that's really important to your faith so that primarily younger members of the congregation can learn and grow. And we had this one event, our, our best attended event was about suffering, and it was all about how do we handle the problem of suffering in the world? And this former member of Trinity shared this story about his daughter who had to go into the hospital. And I forget the specific circumstances of her hospitalization, but she had some kind of rash all over her body and it was gonna be really detrimental if she scratched at her skin. And so she had to be strapped down to the table. And she was not much older than my son Orson. She was a toddler. And she couldn't possibly understand what her family was doing. What was her dad doing to her? And she just cried out, Dad, let me go. Dad, help me. Dad, do something. And the most loving thing he could do was not release her because he was wise and good and loving. And that's us. We are in the midst of our pain and maybe it even feels like God is strapping you to the table and he's tightening you down and no matter how much you cry, he's not letting up. But the problem is not that he's not in control. The problem is not that he's not good. It's that he's wise. He knows what's best for us and he's not the author of the evil we're suffering, but he allowed it to happen. And only by clinging to this God who is actually in control, who's actually powerful, can we have any hope in the midst of our pain. David assumes that God is in control. A prayer of lament honors God because it says, God, you are sovereign. The second belief that is the foundation of lament is that God is infinitely valuable. Notice that David's lament is really generic. We have no idea what he's actually experiencing. Are the enemies he's talking about literal or are they metaphorical? Is he, is he suffering from an illness or is this one of the many examples in his life that we could find in First and Second Samuel where real enemies were trying to kill him, pursue him and take his life? We don't know. And that's actually very purposeful on David's part. Notice of the, the four questions, how long? Not, only one of them actually are about David's circumstance, three of them are about God. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Do you hear what David's primary concern is? It's that God isn't near to him in his pain. That's his primary concern. God, where are you? It's the belief that fundamentally the worst possible suffering I could experience is to be separated from God. It's the belief that if God would make himself near to me, then I could walk through any suffering. That if God's presence was with me, if I sensed his love and his nearness, I would be at peace no matter what my circumstances. 
David is clearly communicating his biggest pain, his biggest frustration is that God has turned away from him, is that he doesn't sense his presence with him, that he feels abandoned by God. His greatest suffering is being without the one person who can give him real peace. And so lament is not like our normal complaints. Our normal complaints reveal our hearts. Our normal complaints are, God, I don't have what I want, and what I most want isn't you. I don't have the job that I want, or the family that I want, or the money that I want, or the fill in the blank. Most of our complaints actually reveal what we want deep down is an idol. It's not God. But the prayer of lament says, God, what I want most of all is you and you're not here. And so lament, again, is deeply honoring to God. It's saying, God, I want nothing more than I want you. Where are you? And finally, lament believes in the goodness of God. If you believe that God was in control, that God was supremely valuable, but that God doesn't care about you, you wouldn't pray. David cries out to God, even though he accuses him of abandoning him, because he believes fundamentally that God is good, that God hears the cry of the downcast, that God is merciful. One of my favorite Old Testament passages is uh, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you hear that? The God of the universe who dwells in perfect holiness and glory also dwells with those of a broken heart, also dwells with those of a broken spirit who are lowly, and contrite. That is the belief that David is clinging to, that God is merciful and compassionate, that God is near to those who mourn, that God hears our prayers. That's why he's crying out. And so here's my question for you. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, do you lament? Do you believe these truths? Do you believe that God is powerful to save you? That he is truly in control? Do you believe that God is more valuable, more to be treasured than all else in the entire world? And the worst possible thing is not having him. Do you believe that he's good, that he's merciful, that he's loving? That is the foundation of these prayers of lament. And in no way do they dishonor God. In no way are they presumptuous. In fact, the only thing they're presuming upon is the goodness, the value, the glory of God. When you are suffering lament, even with words of accusation and agony and interrogation of God, he invites it. Come to him, bank on who he said he was. Bank on his power. Bank on his goodness. He invites you to cry to him. Look back at the text, verses three and four. 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The first thing we notice in our text is that when we experience suffering, we need to go to God and lament. And the second thing we see in our text is that when we experience suffering and it seems like God is silent, we need to keep praying and pray according to God's character. One of the the biggest challenges of, of suffering is that we have this experience in our human life that when somebody gives us the cold shoulder, when somebody stops speaking to us, we, we generally know we're supposed to respond in kind. All right, they're ignoring me. Well, I'm going to ignore them. They're, they're, they're not talking to me. Well, I'm going to stop engaging with them, stop talking to them. And actually, this might be one of the most challenging lessons is that God wants you in the midst of your suffering and this experience that he's not near to you to keep pressing in. He wants you to learn a deeper faith, a faith that is not based upon what God can get you, what God can do for you, but simply a desire for him and who he is. God wants your faith to grow so that you are not primarily concerned with what you can have, but how you can have him. That's what's going on in our text. And that might sound counterintuitive. Because we just read about how David asks for help. He prays for help. But notice that David's prayers, the the reason for them is not wrapped up in himself. He says, consider and answer me. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Why does he want God to save his life, to answer him, to come to his aid? Lest he sleeps the sleep of death. Lest his Enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest his foes rejoice. Think about that for a moment. If you're going to die, you don't care who's going to gloat. You care about living. You care about surviving, making it through the day. And David, oddly, is concerned about who's going to gloat. He's concerned about the fact that if he dies, no one will be there to praise God. He's concerned that if he dies, the enemies of God's people will rejoice over them. He's concerned that God's character will be besmirched. That's his greatest concern. He's concerned about God's honor and glory most of all. And so we see in this passage a challenging teaching, once again, that most of us, most of the time, are consumed with ourselves and we are consumed with idols, that we love more and in the place of God. And suffering is teaching us profoundly to pursue God first and most, to actually wake up to the fact that we weren't made to pursue money and power and sex and comfort and fill in the blank. We were made to have God. And I'm not trying to say in any way that that God is playing some kind of sick trick on you, that he's trying to to force you into suffering so that you'll, you'll just learn a quick lesson. He's actually being deeply merciful to you. If you read Romans 1, you'll see that one of the the most sad things God can ever do is leave someone to their own sin. When God gives up on somebody, he lets them pursue whatever they want. And it is God disciplining us and 
purifying us from our idolatry that is actually his greatest mercy. That he is drawing us in to love him more than everything else. That's how David is praying. David is praying like men who have gone before him. Like Abraham, who when God told him that he was going to destroy Sodom, Abraham prayed, Far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Or Moses, when Israel committed the sin of the golden calf and started worshiping and bowing down to this calf, saying, you're our savior. And God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel. Moses prays, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains? And later on, he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. How is David praying? How did Abraham pray? How did Moses pray? They pray that God would remember his honor, that God would act according to his character, that God would be true to who he is, primarily for his name's sake, so that the enemies of God's people won't gloat over God, so that he would be honored, so that he would be shown to be awesome and wonderful and glorious in every way. James in the New Testament tells his readers, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why are you not getting answers to your prayers? Because your prayers are all about you. And he advises them to purify themselves from double-mindedness, trying to love God and love the world. And it's often a hard pill to swallow but our suffering is a purifying fire that is meant to take the dross of all of our idolatry away from us, that is caused to, to help us actually be purified, be single-minded in our love for God and our pursuit of him. And so do you see again that these prayers of lament are in no way dishonoring to God. They are actually all about seeing God honored. And God's honor is not in competition with our good either. Clearly, David asks to be saved, to be helped, to be answered by God. They're not in competition, but the reason David wants God's help is not because he wants to be comfortable, but because he wants God to be true to his character. He wants him to be glorified. Is this the way you pray in the midst of your pain? Is this the way you pray in the midst of your suffering? Or have you gone silent with God because he's not giving you what you really want? Do you pray for comfort, for relief because it's primarily about you? Or do you pray that God would act in his faithfulness towards you for his name's sake? Do you pray that God would be merciful to you so that you might honor his goodness, that you might sing his praises because he is the God who saves David's not primarily concerned with himself. He's concerned with God. Look back at the text one more time, verses five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. The first thing we see in our text is that when we face suffering, we need to turn to God and lament. The second thing we see is that 
even when it feels like God is silent, we need to keep praying and pray in accordance with God's character. And the final thing we see here is whether you see a light at the end of the tunnel or not, you need to rejoice. There's no indication in our text at all that something has changed in David's circumstances, that God has answered him, that God has saved him from his enemies. In fact, the more plain reading of the text is that nothing's different that David is in just as bad a situation as he was before he prayed. And yet, David still is overcome by peace. Do you hear this switch from this, this anxiety of the first four verses? You hear it in the repetition. How long, how long, how long, how long? Lest I die, lest my enemies rejoice over me. And then this peace. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. David turns to peace, turns to rejoicing despite his circumstances, whether, whether he saw a light at the end of the tunnel or not. And I want you to know, again, that the only way you can survive suffering, make meaning out of suffering, have hope in the midst of suffering, is doing what David did here, is choosing to rejoice in God regardless of your circumstances. David looks back and says, God has been bountiful to me. He looks back and says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. We've talked about this Hebrew word before. It's so important in the Old Testament. God's hesed, his covenantal faithfulness, his steadfast love, his absolute commitment to keeping his promises. But what is the love that David is thinking of? I would argue David is thinking about the covenant that God made specifically with him. You see it in 2 Samuel. That God came to David and told him that he would have an eternal throne. That he would never lack an heir on the throne of Israel. That the love of God would never depart from his family. And so it's that promise that God gave David that makes him say, I shall rejoice in your salvation. And here's the amazing thing about how the Holy Spirit weaves the story of Scripture together. The word salvation in Hebrew, Yeshua, would be that Messiah's name, would be that son of David. As we heard in our gospel reading, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her, you shall bear a child. You shall have a son and his name will be Jesus. Salvation. And he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And I will give to him the throne of his father, David. And so David was right. Even now, David is in heaven rejoicing in Jesus Christ, God's salvation. And so if we are to survive the greatest traumas, pains, sufferings of this life, we must do what David did. We must take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus Christ. We must put them on God's salvation. The one who came for us, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose from the grave to win for us everlasting life. Jesus, our deliverance. Because when we look at the cross of Christ, we can say with David, God has dealt bountifully with me. We can say with absolute confidence, God is good to me, no matter what I'm walking through right now. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians something rather dramatic. I've told our high school students before, the Apostle Paul appeared to suffer from suicidal ideation. He despaired of life itself, is what he says in 2 Corinthians. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I don't know what suffering you're walking through this morning. I don't know what kinds of pains you're carrying in your heart. But the answer is not drowning yourself in some distracting pleasure, turning to the bottle or to pornography or to whatever nonsense you think is going to distract you from the pain you're walking through. It's not Epicureanism. It's not stoicism. It's not cauterizing your emotional life so that you're desensitized to everything you feel so that you don't have to feel the pain anymore. That's just nonsense. The Christian gospel tells you that you can walk into the deepest pains of all and not be crushed by them. You can trust in Jesus Christ, your deliverer, who has delivered you and who will deliver you. Jesus will, at the end of time, wipe away every last tear. He will end all suffering and mourning and pain. And every week, as we come to the table, we are reminding ourselves how bountiful he has treated us, how bountifully he has dealt with us, that he loved us so much that he died for us. So whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're walking through, come to God and lament. Trust that he is powerful, that he is wonderful, that he is good. Trust that his honor, his glory is far better than whatever idols are in your life. And look to Jesus Christ, our deliverer, now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, None of us want to be in the position of Psalm 13. None of us want to experience the suffering, the pain, the sorrows that David is speaking of. And most of all, Lord, we don't want to feel this separation from you, this distance from you, this terrible experience of feeling abandoned by you. And so, Lord, we cry out to you, hear us, Act, do something to save us. Not for our comfort, but for your glory, that you might be honored, that we might sing your praises. God, we know you will do it because you have kept no good thing from us in Jesus Christ. You have dealt bountifully with us. We will rejoice in your salvation now and always. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.